Welcome to the final draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Claire G. Coleman. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. And I guess wherever you're listening, you are going to be on someone else's land. There is going to be a country, a group of people who were displaced 250-odd years ago. And a part of this conversation and a part of every conversation that we have on this podcast is about acknowledging that and thinking about the implications of that. And to that end, I want to introduce Claire G. Coleman. Claire is a Noongar writer of fiction, essays, poetry, and criticism. She has books out including Terra Nullius, The Old Lie, and Lies Damned Lies. She's got a new book coming up in July. And she joined me for this conversation ostensibly to talk about uh, a fantastic initiative called In Case You Missed at 50, which was looking to support and bring back to the attention of the public books that were published during the pandemic. But Claire and I, if you've ever caught one of our conversations, you can go right back to the beginning of the podcast. Claire was one of our very first guests. We always end up talking far and wide. So we definitely get into Lies, Damned Lies, her most recent book from 2021, which looks at the lies that have been foundational to the history of this country that we call Australia, but of course has had many other names for many different people who have lived here for 60 plus thousand years. We also talk about speculative fiction writing. We talk about Claire's other books. We talk about the necessity to tell stories and to tell truth and to try to discover what that truth is. And most importantly, Claire is going to give us a little bit of a preview of her new book that is coming out in July. Can't say too much. That's Claire's job. So I would like to invite you to join me as we discover Claire G. Coleman's oeuvre, including Lies, Damned Lies and a preview of a brand new book. Hello. Hello. You're on the road. Looks nice where you are. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've got that behind me. Pig Lake, Victoria. Ah, oh, terrific. Thanks for taking the time out of, of your road trip. Right. Yeah, and, and um, I'd like to apologise in advance if, if too many trucks go past. That's okay. I, um, I'm going to all over that. I think, we, I think we call that Atmos and we say that it, um, it, it, it adds texture. To the to the conversation. Excellent. <laughs> let's see. Let's see how we go. All right. Here we go. One, two, three. I'm Andrew Popel. I'm an extremely excited Andrew Popel because I have been able to organise sort of last minute and a really like a conversation that is going to be super exciting because I always love chatting with Claire G. Coleman. Claire is a Noongar writer of fiction, essays, poetry, criticism. She's the author of Terra Nullius, The Old Lie. Lies, Damned Lies, as well as numerous other pieces in publications far and wide. It's always great to chat, Claire. Welcome. Thank you, Andrew. You always make me sound so clever. You are. like You, you are clever. Don't talk yourself down here. I, um, I was writing your intro and I was on your website and I was just like, oh, that's right. There's that article I've got to get to and this article. 
But look, realistically, we're here to kind of talk a little bit about publishing and the horror impact of the last few years on new releases, of which you've had two that have really been impacted, especially by COVID. You will forgive me, though, if I wheedle in a few bookish questions. Um, Of course. Yeah. And I thought, look, I, I wanted to actually start talking about lies and I guess also by proxy truth because your most recent book is Lies Damned Lies. Before that, you have the incredible The Old Lie. And, of course, your first no- novel was Terra Nullius, um, of course, named for perhaps the most infamous lie in so-called Australia's history. You'll forgive if I notice a bit of a theme going on here. So let's let's start with what does this idea of truth and lies mean to you variously as a novelist, which is all about fiction, and also as a chronicler of history? Well, um, lies um, would be the big topic of our current society if it was a, for the fact that everyone seems determined to ignore the existence of lies. Um, even um, even American politics, uh, some Donald Trump invented the phrase, or someone um, around Donald Trump invented the phrase, alternative facts. Well, that's a lie. And an alternative fact is a lie. And, and the concept of fake news, fake news is a lie. And even the, we've even got to the point in our society where we are, um, where people try and discredit the real news by calling the, calling the truth fake news. So we're, we're actually at this situation now where, um, in, in a way, fake stuff has become, like fake news has become the dominant, um, dominant culture. And it, it's really hard to work out what's true anymore. Well, it's not hard to work out what's true if you look, but um, even online at, at lately there's this, been this concept of um, people saying that um, people who, are like, who believe lies are saying that fact checkers can't be trusted. That as soon as something says it's a fact check, then that then obviously if it says the word fact check, that must be a lie because they've been taught that fact checkers lie. So we've got this situation where um, where truth has become um, op- truth has become essentially optional in our society, but that that's not new. It's just becoming more overt. I mean, the, the, the first bit of um, fake news in Australian history is the country itself. Mm. Um. It feels like okay, like well, it can start to feel like we live in this extraordinarily contingent world where it's all about what you woke up and looked at first. Until it's sort of you, you start to dig a little bit, and then you realise the person who's screaming at you fake news, alternate facts, says you can't believe any of them. But believe me, believe me, well, yeah, you know you've got to. Um, where do you where do you go? And I, w- I want to dig a little bit more into lies, damned lies later on. But where do you go when it comes to starting trying to assert ideas like truth and fact? And when you when you are writing, um, particularly uh, uh, history as lies, damned lies deals with, where do you go and how do you start to assert truth and fact? A good a good starting point um, is the kind of multi-hundred-year-old oral history in Australia, which is seeming a lot of time more accurate than what is written. Um, also, I, I look into the um, truth hidden between the lies, if you like. Um, it's like when, when somebody is lying, the lie leaves a, a silhouette, and that silhouette can often be found the truth. Um, 
But also you, you go back you go back to primary sources. I mean, the classic one is going back to the primary source of Captain Cook's journals. Mm. Rather than reading what people said about Cook, look at what he said about himself. And then you realise that in Australian history, it's not even been necessary to lie as such. In the, in the story of Cook, it's not necessarily to, necessary to lie about Cook because people don't want to know the truth. People are more obsessed with the mythology. And they, 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 kind of, they don't even want to think about the truth. So going back to primary sources is helpful. But also you, got to, you, you need to understand that people also, also lie about their own history, about the primary, in their primary sources. And the, um, sometimes what you have to do is, is think um, what someone has to gain from lying. And one of the fact thing that um, historical fact checkers do, people who are checking history, they say that if there's two sources and they disagree, look who had the most to gain from lying. And, that's, and that will tell you who the truth is. And the classic example is the massacre that happened on my ancestral country in the 1780s where um, the white fellow history says there was um, so a man, a white man was murdered and his family retaliated and, and killed some Aboriginal people. But the oral history um, for my extended family um, names the guy, names, names the person who speared him and said that the white man had raped the girl and that's why they punished him for the rape. And you, and you look at, well, what, what do white people have to, have to gain? Well, there's a lot to gain from, from covering up massacres. They don't want to be held to account for the massacre. What do Aboriginal people have to gain? Well, nothing except the truth coming out. So if you look at it that way, generally the people who have the least to gain from, from lying will be the ones that are telling the truth. And that's kind of a, a good starting point, I think. So Lies, Damn Lies does go to the source material and it identifies and exposes myths. It exposes inconsistencies. It exposes, let's say, the title again for the people in the cheap seats, the lies, damned lies, around this mainstream story of the last 250 or so years of history. Mm. I think it's probably really important, though, that we actually establish like why we're talking about that because there are people out there who are saying, I mean, most recently... you know, it feels a little bit dirty to kind of repeat this this notion around, you know, it's it's not sorry, but I, I forgive you that is the hardest thing to say. Like, well, But let's establish, why are we talking about this? What is the ongoing process of colonisation and how does the truth and the lies of this history impact our current world? Why do we need to be talking about this? Well, part of the, part of the, um, the principle of colonisation, it starts with, um, if you want, if someone certainly wants to be colonised, you've either got to start with the notion that the people that there's no one living there, or the people living there are not worthy of that place, or are not um, do not um, have a sense of possession of the land. And the classic one about that is, of course, Terranullius erasing Aboriginal possession of the land is is a lie upon which Australia was um, kind of established. And in, in the the lies built into colonisation are there to protect the colony from any notion that it could have been um, illegitimate. The mythology of Australia is all about making Australia seem to be something it's not. Australia wants to think of itself as a peaceful, friendly colony where where um, Aboriginal people and white people 
kind of lived in harmony. And, and to an extent we did, but when, when Aboriginal people and white people lived in harmony, it was most of the work of the Aboriginal people to ensure that happened because the, um, certainly the colonizer didn't show any intent within history. If you look at the historical record, there was no intent by the colonizer to colonize peacefully. The intent was to colonize and erase Aboriginal people. And that's written in the primary sources. So the colony doesn't, the colony doesn't want to think of itself as illegitimate or as a violent, um, as colonization as a violent act. So the colony rewrites itself on a constant basis. And that's the kind of the reason for the purpose of the lies. Um, colonizers don't want to think about what's happened. Is it fair then to you, – you talked about this process of rewriting, which is um, like a, a really fascinating notion because we're not just talking about a single lie. Like you can we, – we can go to lies, damned lies. We can look – you've already mentioned you went to the source, um, Cook's Diaries, and there are, there are inconsistencies there where we can see the shadows of the truth. But would it be fair to say that we, we constantly see this rewriting happening in public discourse and even in political discourse, maybe even as recently as, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago? Well, yeah, of course. And, mm. and it's been ongoing, certainly as long as I've, as long as I've been um, working as a writer and, and paying close attention. Because once, once I started writing, I started paying, paying close attention to what is said and what is thought by people whether I'm writing fiction or non-fiction, understanding what people are saying and what they're thinking um, helps to come up with better stories, helps to write better stories, better essays or better fiction. Um, and certainly um, um, Morrison saying, um, was, I, um, I forgive you is hard to say than sorry. Mm. I, don't, I'm not even think, I don't even think that's true. I don't believe that for a moment. I don't believe that forgiving someone is harder than apologising because if it was, then then Aboriginal people have obviously been the strongest people in Australia because we're constantly being called upon to forgive mm. the colony and forgive the coloniser and without any actual attempt at um, saying sorry. And, and the, the classic lie, if you, if, you want to think, if you want to think of it this way, um, Scott Morrison could be seen as like um, – teaching us a constant masterclass and lying and getting away with it. Mm. Uh, the classic one is, is the circumnavigation of Australia reenactment, where he intended to reenact the circumnavigation of Australia by Cook. When Cook never circumnavigated Australia, um, if, you're, if, you're ena- if you're trying to reenact something that never happened, that's kind of an enactment because you can't reenact something that didn't exist. And it, it's kind of it, – it's, it's this notion of let's just come up with a lie that, that suits our idea of what we want the colony to be and then pretend that's the truth and maybe if we say it enough time, people will believe it. Mm. And unfortunately, they do. And History is constantly being rewritten. And when it is rewritten, they, they – um, by the colonisers to put lies into the history and we try and correct those lies. We're accused of trying to rewrite history. And – it gets this incredible foothold. I mean, it's 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 nice to have this conversation, and it's nice to be able to say, "Ha ha ha! How ignorant was he? He wants to enact something that was never done in the first place to reenact." But it gains a foothold in popular consciousness, 
There are oh. uh, we see various forms of cognitive dissonance that that people try to employ things like it all happened in the past. It has nothing to do with me. But I mean, in your in your day to day, like. What do you see? How, how do these lies maintain this foothold in people's consciousness? And why don't they want to challenge them? Um, there's, a, there's a classic lie that's, that has come up recently in my social media. We, it has, it's not the first time, but this particular um, falsehood has been appearing in um, Australian uh, historiographical discourse for, I don't know, 50 years or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, there's a series of paintings, rock art paintings in the Northern Kimberley called the Gyeonggyeon, or they're called the Bradshaw figures by anthropologists because I discovered by an anthropologist called Bradshaw. And there's a, there's a running myth in the Australian discourse that they were painted by African people, not by Aboriginal people. Okay. And uh, the, the only explanation for why this would be something that they constantly state is so they can claim that there was a, there's been a, another migration into Australia. And there's a constant claims of multiple waves of migration, including um, one of the earliest, well, one of the one, kind of one of the first anthropologists to really try and do a deep dive and understand Aboriginal culture, a guy called Tyndale, who said that there were three migrations into Australia. Now this comes up again and again. It came up in um, 2015 or something with, um, or it could be 2012 with an article by Keith Windshuttle in which he claimed that this that this three migrations into Australia theory, three, three migrations of Aboriginal people theory was the truth and that it was erased by Aboriginal people in an attempt to get, um, claim land rights. When um, there's no actual evidence anywhere of more than one... Sorry, there's been no evidence anywhere in the genetics and the history, um, archaeological record or the or in any sort of history at all, there's been more than one migration of Aboriginal people. The reason that lie persists is because if they, if the colonisers can claim that that the current Aboriginal people are merely the third or something wave of people migrating to Australia, it is a less of a crime if they are to try and steal the land from us. Even though that doesn't even make sense, we're still there before they were. But there's a, that's the... That one, it, it justifies the economy. The other one that's constantly dragged up to justify the economy is this myth, is this the myth that Cook discovered Australia. Mm. By no definition of the word discover could Cook have discovered Australia. And it's not even, nowhere in his, in his the primary sources of the state that Cook discovered Australia. It's stated he explored the East Coast and mapped it. The first person to map the East Coast of Australia. <laughs> but his own diaries state that Everything west of where he was was New Holland because it's actually been there first. It's got a real um, – all of this has got a real flavour of kind of academic, I know you are, so what am I? Like, you know, if, if yeah. you did it first, we did it better, so everyone gets to, you know, be a good person by virtue of, you know, someone else doing it. I, so we've got these lies and they're being perpetuated. I wanted to, I wanted to actually take another step on because if we talk exclusively in you know sort of facts this and lies that we do run the risk of also dehumanizing the very real impact mm. that these yep. lies have where we're sort of talking about groups of people or historical people if you are comfortable discussing it can you talk mm. a little bit about what you um what is in lies damned lies the impact that the lies have had on your life and in on your family well certainly there's a 
there's a, on a very personal level, there was a, there was a lie, and that lie was um, my grandfather lied about his ancestry and lied about my father's ancestry, even to my father. And that lie, of course, was passed on to me. There, there was the most, it was for the most noble of reasons. It was done to protect us because back at the time, um, all in WA, um, when my dad was born, all children and actually from before, from when, before when my dad was born, from 1905, my dad was born in 1931. So from 1905, not 1931, 1941. So 1905 to 1971, all Aboriginal children who were born with a mixed race, who weren't um, uh, pure, so-called pure Aboriginal, as the, the um, courts called it, were automatically considered wards of the state mm. and were therefore subject to be taken away. And there's a number of reasons, the number of things, they, lies they said to justify this, but essentially my dad would have been, um, automatically awarded the state at birth if he had a file with the Department of Aborigines. So his father lied and said that that he was a, he was Fijian, which protected my brother from being, which protected my dad from being taken. Also, would have protected my brother from being taken because he was born in 1971, 1970, and the law changed 1971. I was born in 74, so I would have missed out on the actual worst of the Solomon generation laws. But it wasn't until um, essentially my twenties relatively late in my twenties that I discovered my Aboriginal ancestry. Now people say it was, it was recently, but um, it's more, it's basically more than 20 years ago. That's not recent. That's a kind of, but it's taken, it took a while to, to kind of, to return, so to speak, to return to culture, um, culture and country. It's been a, a work of, of decades and will be uh, the work of a lifetime because generally it takes a lifetime to really, um, to repair some damage like that. So this colonisation and the lies that were told, and then my, my grandfather, a lie my grandfather told to protect us from the government have all impacted on my family, having a, a kind of a, a hole in our, in our culture where we weren't brought up in culture. But then again, we're Noongar, and then the Noongar are among the worst damaged of First Nations people, in that um, we suffered the worst among the worst massacres. I'm not saying we caught the worst than um, than the Gadigal or Gregal people of where Sydney is now. The people of the Eora Nation they copped it probably worse than we did because they copped it for longer. But the Noongar people had the worst um, worst legislated removal of our rights of any people in Australia, and therefore. Uh, which we suffered quite badly. And, of course, we were colonised after the other parts of Australia to an extent, not after Melbourne, but after South Australia and well after New South Wales. And I think the government learnt something about cruelty by the time they colonised us because they did a lot, they did a very bad, very nasty thing to us. And really my family has been wounded. We have intergenerational trauma. We have um, we have lost our country and, and our language is almost extinct. There's, um, this, these things are all a direct response to the the laws that um, on the system that considered my people to be unworthy of any rights of the land that we um, had lived on forever. Which is sort of the foundational lie on which everything else has been built. Absolutely. And that's another thing. The foundational lie is that, of course, we, we didn't exist or we 
um, where they ever land. They call that the live, they, they call that Terra Nullius. But in itself, the way we look at Terra Nullius in Australia is a lie as well. Because until land rights began, there was no concept of Terra Nullius either. There was no declaration at any point that we, that, um, that we weren't here. It was just assumed that we weren't here. Um, so this, this idea that we, that, um, that Terra Nullius was declared by Cook, that too is a lie. The more you look into it, the more you realise that, that the first mention of Terra Nullius by the courts were during the birth of land rights, which is, if you think about it, they didn't, they didn't care about the fact that our land, that we didn't own our land and that we wanted it back until we asked for it. Mm. Like it's really, I mean, it is really tempting here to look at this as some sort of almost absurdly comic bureaucratic stuff up where it wasn't until someone looked for the paperwork that they realized it hadn't been filed properly in, <laughs> in the, in the late 18th century. Um, and you know, Duncan from accounting is in real trouble because he didn't, you know, fill it out in triplicate. But this has this ongoing, this ongoing uh, impact. It feels like ridiculously inadequate to continue a conversation about this. But I mean, I want to I want to continue the conversation because I feel like the the way these conversations are being had, the fact that I am talking to probably one of my favorite authors about books that she is writing that are continuing this conversation must must show us something and i'm really interested like I, I love your books but i've followed you on social media for a while and i noticed that your your quest to combat lies and misinformation is is basically a daily practice i mean we all have to take a mental health break from from twitter occasionally but basically a daily practice often it seems at a personal cost to you and i wonder like as you know as great as books are do you sometimes feel like that is where a lot of your work is happening? Like, do you feel like maybe the battleground for ideas isn't always in the publications, but in these strange digital spaces? Well, I, th- I think it's an extension of something that um, Jello Biafra from the Dead Candies, and in his first ever spoken word album, and it stuck with me. I can't remember which track it was, but his first ever spoken word album was this, basically a series of socio-political rants, essentially. And one of them... And he said it, don't hate the media, become the media. And then he explained, he said, don't, I don't mean by that start zines or start your own radio station. What I mean is, is there's a lie in the media, tell everyone you know about it on a personal level. Mm. And if somebody says, says something that's a lie, then tell them that that's not true and then tell everyone around them that it's not true. And then eventually then, because um, lies spread by word of mouth and so can the truth. And, Lies are viral, but truth can be viral. And I often talk to everyone about this notion of viral truth. And I suppose one of the reasons to combat misinformation online is because the misinformation online does go viral and goes viral very quickly. So, the, so therefore, truth online, truth online can go viral. Mm. And people have asked me, for example, um, if it's okay to tweet one of my um, one of my opinion pieces that that brings out a truth, and I say, well, in reality, the reason I, I do a lot of my work is is so that is there for people to disseminate it and use it to to um, to tell the truth and speak truth to power and and counter lies of truth. And I don't think I don't think that we can say with certainty that um, that giving someone the truth will automatically 
erase the lies. I don't. I think that any notion of that is is foolish. I don't think that it works. I don't think reality works that way. Mm. And that that's why social media can be so difficult because someone will tell a lie and you counter that lie, and then they repl- reply with another lie, and you counter that lie. And sometimes it just gets out of hand. And I don't. I don't believe that. Um, on social media, ignoring the lies makes them go away. Some people say, oh, don't reply to them, then the lies will go away. I don't think that works that way because those those lies are going viral whether we counter them or not. So, therefore, ignoring them isn't working because ignoring them is just um, – they're just continuing. So, I think maybe to an extent countering them is working. And um, I, I hope that over time people who are – who are armed to counter lies will continue to do so. And by armed to counter lies, I mean people who are good at replying, who are good at digging out the truth quickly, who, and other people do it, but also who are emotionally capable. Because I don't think it's not, um, sometimes being on social media, particularly Twitter, can be a bit like um, doing a swan dive into a toilet. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> let's, uh, <laughs> let's come back then to to your books. Sure, there's a book show. I like talking books. I yeah, do. Man. I do think as much as as you know, Twitter kind of embodies that whole idea of the lie getting halfway around the world while the truth is putting its pants on. Um, kind of cliche. Um, books have this authority. Books are spaces to expand ideas, and you've had. These two incredible books, Lies, Damned Lies, was out last year. The Old Lie came out in 2019. And they have been sort of impacted as everything has been impacted by the last two years. Now, like, for all the time I spend reading, I still find a lot about the industry opaque. Um, so you've had your books out. They're, the books are in the stores. They're on the shelves. They're in the, on the interwebs. But how, does, how has the pandemic really affected your ability to work and to, to earn around making these these releases it's it's one of those um ironies of um of the world that the the of all art forms the art form that is most solitary which is writing books mm. is also the art form that is most reliant on public appearances mm. it's one of those lines and i think it's because you know even like people who are for example um tv stars on movies they've got movie um trailers got tv adverts and they they're appearing in being pulled into people's screens, and they they're always they're always there. But to a large extent, the success of a book is is reliant on on word of mouth. And sometimes the first word of mouth that people receive about a book is from the author. So I can get I um I can guarantee that there has been loss to the to the book sales of anyone whose book came out during. Um, the COVID pandemic, even the point where the, the kind of insider word has been that book sales have, have remained steady through the last few years of the pandemic, but book sales of new books have dropped. Mm. So people are buying books that they've heard of or books they already know, authors they already know. Um, and, and of course, so I've had two books out during the pandemic. The first one was um, September 2019, which is The Old Lie, which isn't technically during COVID, but um, only got half a touring season. You know, you normally tour a book for about a year and only got half a year before, or less than half a year, about four months before it all came crashing down. And Lies Damn Lies 
um, has lost so far all of his touring season in that um, things were just starting to clear up in in um, August and then in September everything started closing up again and I still have not um, been anywhere to promote that book. Mm. And that's just a simple fact. Sure, there's online as well, but I don't know. I don't haven't seen the numbers, but I suspect that sales from people attending a virtual writers festival are probably lower because at a writers festival, um, it's this kind of not that obvious thing. But um, if an author gets up on stage and talks, and the audience members enjoy their conference, what they have to say, they generally go straight out to the festival bookstore buy the book. So you, if you go to a festival and you can talk and you can really talk, you might go out to a festival and there might be 150 people in the audience. Maybe only 20 of them have never heard of your book. Well, a large number of them might have heard of the book because often you'll do, you're in a panel with a bunch of people who who also have books out, but their fans turn up too. So there'll be a large percentage who've never, never heard of your book. And of those, a percentage will go out and buy your book. I don't know what the percentage is. It varies. But every time I've, I've done a writer's festival panel, I've sold a, a chunk of books, maybe 20, maybe 50. Um, but those, in fact, I've even, I once sold 50 books at a writer's festival in Darwin where the population of Darwin's like five people. So it's not quite a bit more than that, but the population of Darwin is tiny and I sold 50 books, mm. which is all the town, which was all that was in the town on the weekend of the writer's festival. The entire supply of my, of Terranolians was wiped out in the day. When I was at the writer's festival. So I know that, that there's a certain amount of sales that come from literally from being there and that none of us can be there. And that's really been, quite a difficult experience. I mean, I can, I can vouch for this anecdotally. I know, like, I don't, I don't buy a lot of books because I don't have to. Part of, part of getting to talk to amazing people is, is like, well, you might be able to ask better questions if you actually read them. Um, and yeah, most of the books that I have bought in recent memory have been people that I've either seen speak or heard speak through some other capacity, through a podcast, through their YouTube. Um, so it's, it, and then that look, an analogy that comes to mind is like musos doing concerts. And I mean, I, I feel like anyone who's interested even a little bit in music knows that the industry is getting the guts ripped out by streaming services and they're making their money as part of the ancillary to doing appearances. Like, is that a fair comparison? Is there, am I talking out of my hat here? No, that's, that's, that, that's a, yeah, that's a pretty good comparison. In book, um, I think that the translation um, from, audience member to buy in, in a book at writers festivals is a bit stronger than it is in, for example, music festivals. I don't think people um, who listen, who go to see a band necessarily go out and buy the music as much as people who see a writer speak go and buy their books. Yeah. Because the people at writers festivals all have tote bags and they're not dripping in sweat. They've got somewhere to put the book. That's, that's what it's got to yeah. be. <laughs> and, 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 and let's face it, people really like getting books signed and, I, except for people for signing of people I know, and my I had a book launch in Alice Springs when I was broken down there. Except for that, I haven't signed books for two years, which for me is like that's a very long time to go without signing a book, really. Mm. Mm. I feel like actually the last time we met face to face, you might I think you might have been wearing a wrist guard. Was that from signing books? Because I notice it's off now. That's that's all resolved from no more book signing. No, no, I, I, the wrist guard was when I actually fell over and broke my wrist, which is hilarious. Because I, I went, I was on book two with a broken wrist for like 
for months. So a lot, of, a lot of people out there with a very fake-looking left-handed Clergy Coleman signature. <laughs> that's true. And that's how I learned how to, how to hold the pen between two fingers. Very good. The ones, and then, like, so I was working, which is hilarious. Yeah, I remember the signing books of Broken Wrist, which is the funniest thing ever. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I can't be sure that um, the lack of – that my books have suffered from a lack of buzz. But I do know that that um, Terra Nullius is still my best-selling book. And that was the book, the only book that has not had any pandemic effect. I just hope it's over by July because I have another book out in July. All right, hang on. Before we get to that, that that's like that, um, that's definitely on the agenda. We are we are chatting. A part of why we are chatting is because Lies Damned Lies is part of the In Case You Missed It or ICM. I, I, I see why am I 50, um, including oh, other authors like Jamie Marina Lau's Gunk Baby, the other half of you from Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Um, it's, it's bringing these books back to the fore, 50 books that mm. were released, dropping them out in the world. Um, h- how did you get involved in this and, and are you noticing anything from it? I haven't, I haven't, um, it's actually really hard, um, to keep track of book sales because it's often hard. Even, even the publisher can't get much notice book sales. But I have noticed there's been a bit more. Whenever I've done a, a bit of media from it, and I have noticed every time I, I do media from it, there seems to be a spike of interest. Which and interest does translate to books, not one to one, but um, it is useful. And um, it's actually interesting because I'm. Um, I'm more concerned, but people think, sometimes think of Lies and Lies as almost like a debut book because it's not because it's my first non-fiction book. Um, in fact, one of the media reviews actually called my my debut, which is hilarious considering. But um, I think I think it, it is actually um, this. In case you missed it, fifty. Um, I think there is sales, and you can actually see some interest on the, the you know when they have a special stand for them at some bookstores. Mm. You do see some interest. And I know that it's one of those little quirks of the industry that um, often a new book isn't given all that long to prove itself. Mm-hmm. Before, it's, before um, it, it's, if it doesn't prove itself, it's often remainded and it's not reordered. Apologies, my phone just rang. No um, um, yeah, often books uh, who um, give, can miss out and are not and are remainded and certainly all, and at least are not reordered. And that can be really problematic. Um, and I'm, 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 I might not have ever been in danger of that, but I certainly would have been in danger of, of, of lives and lives being more obscure than my other two books. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know. And I, 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 I do think the buzz has returned a bit because it came out in September. Um, it would have been it would have been approaching the doldrums by now if it didn't have any sales. So it's nice to see it coming back. But one thing I've always been worried though, even more than worried about myself, and everyone has the right to worry about themselves. I've always worried about um, debut authors who have books out during the pandemic. A very very um, a very dangerous situation to be in because if you if your first book is remained the chance of getting a second book out is not very high. As far as how I got involved in the in case you missed it, I got an email 
I didn't even know it was going to be happening. And I think that's everyone who who is involved in this was asked, or maybe they, they asked our publishers. I don't know. Um, just, uh, although I do understand a bit about how the publishing industry works after five years in the in the limelight industry, I still don't know how publicists work. Mm. It's a dark art, publicity. It, it, I mean, it, look, it really is. They, um, they magic their way into my emails, and I, I end up having these incredible conversations. I, it's a good art, but I mean, I'm just, I'm just even looking at this list, and people have only got a few more days. It's going till the end of February, and in case you missed it, fifty. That doesn't mean these books disappear, but you get them a little bit. It's like twenty percent off, and twenty percent off is a good discount. Mm. And there's incredible books. Like you scroll down and Black and Blue from uh, Veronica Gori, which won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award, like the big prize, that's there. The Mother Wound from Amani Hayder, which also took out a prize at Victorian Premier's Literary Award. Like these are, these are not the books that they're just like, oh, well, we better, we better kind of get rid of them. They're like, these are just incredible books, including Lies, Damned Lies. We've talked a lot about things... Um, things like COVID and the last two years, I want to en- try and end us on a little bit of a high note. You've, you've already mentioned July. Can I do a little bit of a preamble, like a red carpet up to you telling me about this new book? Sure. Okay. I know like in your writing, it's, it's no longer a spoiler. I think to say that Terra Nullius isn't exactly a contemporary novel. Like it's uh, yeah. And I know you're a, I know you're a Pratchett fan. And I know your worlds, while they're very different to the disc world, I feel like they have this same power to create these like relatable, understandable parallels with the world that we live in that let readers kind of explore and learn through the narrative. So I guess my question is either, maybe you, you can choose which one of these questions you actually answer, is either would you turn your hand to fantasy as opposed to the more sort of science fiction space or just where this creative interpretive energy comes from? I might try and answer both those questions. They're good questions. I kind of asked um, them hoping you would. <laughs> the, for, for me, the um, kind of creative interpretive energy comes from um, just if, I, if I've got um, something to say and uh, as the, the way to say it often appears to me in, a, in a, like a flash into my mind. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm not sure I even, when I'm, when I'm writing a novel, I'm not sure I even... Um, sit down to try and write another novel. I just sit down and with an idea that I already have, and it's it's there. It's normally complete, and I think it comes from um, from a lot of reading, a lot of interest in in books and movies and and stuff like that. And I think um, if if anything, this the way I look at the world is what drives these creative ideas. Mm. They it's the I see the world slightly askew to how everyone else sees it. And I think it's because I'm, I'm more interested in um, what's behind the curtain or in what's between the lines of a story. So I, um, if I'm, often if I'm reading a story, the first thing I try and do is dismantle it and see what's not being told in the story. And I can't help myself. It's just the way my brain is wired or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just, it, to, to me, I think it's similar to the way that, um, that Terry Pratchett um, would um, he appears to just look at the world that's around him and see something slightly off kilter and amusing about it, 
and if you, he built a story around that, and it's mm. kind of the same thing. But for me, I mean, I'm a lot, I write a lot darker. But it's it's the thing is, the off kilter narrative is always there if you know how to look for it. Mm. And in my case, not even looking for it, it comes to me. As far as writing fantasy is concerned, I have neither a unique interest in writing fantasy nor an interest in not writing fantasy. And I'm sure at some point in my in my life, a story will occur because the stories, I, the, the worlds I build are because that's what the story demands. Mm. Right? If, if the Tamil Nuggets demanded a certain world, the old lie demanded a certain world, my next novel demands a certain world, um, and I'm sure I am certain that one day a story will be there to be written and it will demand a fantasy world, in which case I will write one. And I don't think it's, yeah, although to an, ex, to an extent um, the Australian publishing and literary um, and um, literature industry looks down on fantasy, it looks down on science fiction as well to an extent. So, and... Um, I suppose it has been said that with Terra Nullius, I elevated Australian science fiction and, and changed the industry a bit so that it's no longer completely um, out of the ordinary taboo to imagine writing sci-fi in this country. So I'm sure if I send my mind to writing a fantasy novel, that's the only way I can tell a story, it'll shift everyone's attitude towards fantasy as well. I just haven't had a fantasy story in me to write yet. We're going to file that into the future. Maybe something to look forward to, maybe not. But before people start like throwing their coffee at the radio at all of these teasers, you've said July, there's something new coming up. Mm-hmm. What, if anything, are you able to tell us about it? I can tell you it's a, a near future speculative fiction novel. Okay. It's called Enclave. It's out July the 15th. It's gone to proofs already. So I'm going to be with Hachette. Like my other two novels, and I suppose in, in it's about looking at um, a society where the mainstream have lost their um, shared humanity with the with the people who are different to them, I suppose, and and the harm that does to people. And I that's about you said this was near think. future. That sounds like now. That that's how, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if, if you like, um, because, <laughs> because the best speculative fiction is is done by extrapolating. Yeah. I've taken the world we are in now mm. and extrapolated certain aspects of it, particularly um, the, indiv- the individualism and the, the this weird individualism we have now where people are very individualistic but um, want everyone, every other individual to be just like them. It's like we're all individuals. We all don't care about each other, but we're all, all the same. I've taken that kind of attitude and I've extrapolated and seen what, where my mind takes it and, I've ended up with a novel called Enclave. That sounds so exciting. July, Hachette, I'm like already penciling August to try and call you back in my diary. Claire G. Coleman is chatting to me. Her most recent book is Lies, Damned Lies. It is by no means her debut because she has the incredible Terra Nullius and The Old Lie that you can go out, you can buy. Lies Damned Lies, you're going to get for about 20% off as part of In Case You Missed It 50 till the end of February. Put July enclave in your calendar. Claire, holy heck, that's a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. That's it for this great conversation with Claire G. Coleman. 
Claire has her latest book is Lies Damned Lies. She has a new book called Enclave coming out in July. You can expect to hear more from Claire. And I would like to uh, say thank you for joining me today. Thank you for always joining me for these conversations. Today, the sound was a little bit interesting, but look, I would never let a little bit of sound quality get in the way of an amazing conversation. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can stay in touch. Find the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Hey, if you want to actually catch up with me, I'm on Twitter too. You can variously find me by searching for Andrew Popel uh, or my handle on some of those is at rightsblock. <laughs> Subscribe in your podcast. There will be a new final draft several times a week at the moment. We have book club. We have conversations. We have features. And uh, I love bringing them to you. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from final draft. As always, I hope you got a good book and happy reading to you.